So today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Hong Kim. Uh, Dr. Kim has his MPH and also he uh, did an emergency medicine uh, residency at NYU followed by a toxicology fellowship there, which is, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, NYU's toxicology program is sort of the uh, mecca for um, all things ingested. He uh, now works clinically as a toxicologist as well as in the emergency department and is going to talk to us today about alcohol withdrawal syndrome and cyanide poisoning. All right, thanks. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Hong, as uh, Mike mentioned. So Mike asked me to cover uh, alcohol withdrawal syndrome and cyanide for today, which is kind of very two interesting topic. When you look at the alcohol withdrawal syndrome itself, it's very commonly encountered abstinence syndrome that causes a significant morbidity. On the contrast, when we think about cyanide, I mean, definitely it is significantly lethal, but we don't necessarily encounter uh, very frequently on our day-to-day -day basis. So what we're going to try to help you today is I'm going to just briefly talk about some clinical features and pathophysiology behind these two entities. But for alcohol withdrawal syndrome, we're going to more focus on the management. So what are the you know, benzodiazepine choices that you should consider, as well as what are the, some of the second-line agents that you might think about when treating either severe withdrawal or benzodiazepine-resistant uh, withdrawal. So in respect to cyanide, uh, we're going to kind of focus more on how to recognize uh, patients with cyanide toxicity given the right history of potential exposure. And in, uh, we're going to summarize uh, the, uh, the management, which is uh, relatively straightforward. Uh, which we have uh, two antidote kits uh, available, including uh, hydroxocobalamin, or the alternative is the Lilly kit. Okay, so alcohol in general has been available for hundreds or if not thousands of years, right? And it's grown over the years uh, in terms of use and availability. And today, we, it is really an integral part of our social activity, and I'm sure Many of you have partaken in the drinking experiences as we've advanced in our age, right, and experiences various spectrum of intoxication. But for some, chronic alcoholism and dependence causes a significant morbidity and mortality in a setting of an acute intoxication as well as in abstinence through development of uh, alcohol withdrawal itself. So why is it significant in our critical care patient is that patients who experiences alcohol withdrawal has a tendency to have a longer ICU stay, need for mechanical ventilation, as well as they experience complications such as infection, sepsis, or other pre-existing comorbidities such as cirrhosis and so forth that can complicate or increase their uh, morbidity and mortality during the hospital course. So when we look at the prevalence overall, uh, the, the rate of prevalence kind of vary depending on which specific uh, ICU that you look at. Overall, the, it is estimated that approximately 8% of the admission to the general hospital population is attributed to the alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And uh, based upon one study, for medical ICU, it's estimated to be about 11%. And uh, that's coming from uh, Michigan. Uh, but of course, it really depends on your region and your prevalence of chronic alcoholism, uh, depending on where you practice. But when you actually look at the surgical ICU patients and trauma patients, that range 
is relatively wide, from 8 to 31 percent. And we know that, you know, a lot of uh, trauma patients do have a co-intoxication, commonly alcohol, subsequently resulting to uh, their trauma injuries. But what is different about the surgical patients versus the medical ICU patients is that often the surgical patients or trauma patients tends to develop withdrawal during their hospital course of recovery versus medical ICU patients who gets admitted to the, the unit with a diagnosis. So I want to, you know, start with a, uh, describing this landmark study that was done in 1955. So as you can see from the first sentence, up until this point, there was a significant debate regarding what is the true etiology of alcohol withdrawal. I mean, we know today that it is related to abstinence, but they debated about that back then. So interestingly, what they did is they went to prison and sought out volunteers who were undergoing uh, rehab for opioid. So they basically said, hey, we're going to give you ethanol as much as you can drink, 95%, not 95 proof, 95%, right? So they went through extensive uh, you know, medical psychiatric screening. They did not have any uh, chronic problems, no seizure disorders, uh, no alcoholism. Basically, they've been in this uh, uh, prison for at least three months or greater. So what they wanted to achieve is to establish chronic alcoholism with what they considered safe ambulation and let them drink about six to uh, 12 weeks and just stop and see what happens, okay? So we have these 10 volunteers, right? The first four actually dropped out. But as you can see, we have, you know, Slim, Red, uh, Junior. It's, it's going to be interesting, right? So, but the last six actually went through this uh, study, drank from 48 to uh, 87 days, and they drank about 400 cc's per day. 95% alcohol, right? I mean, th that burns. I'm sorry, right? So they did pretty well. They, they, really, they really meant it. Now, after that, they stopped. So within four hours, or oh, I'm sorry, within eight hours, people began to develop symptoms, right? One is minor, four is kind of severe, as they describe it. Um, as you can see, the last six, lots of fours, lots of threes, tremors, weakness, etc. I'm going to highlight the hallucination, visual, auditory. Uh, Charlie was probably the sickest, so they couldn't really ask him whether he was seeing things or not, right? So that's why there's the star. But you can see the hallucination is quite frequent, four out of six. And then, of course, disorientation, right? What we probably consider as DT, three out of six. And then, of course, seizure was noted in two out of six of those patients, right? Very significant finding. So. I have a description of what Charlie went through. Within eight hours, began to develop tremors. He couldn't button his own clothes because he felt so sick. He had tachycardia, hypertension, tachypnea. And then on exam, he had some reflex, hyperreflexia and clonus. And of course, by 12 hours, he developed seizures, right? During the next 24 hours, total seizure was seven. Now, he developed hyperthermia, 41.4 Celsius, and by that time they said, you know, we got to call it quits. And so they treated with uh, phenobarbital, and he recovered uh, the following about two to three weeks later. So basic conclusion from this study is that 
yes, abstinence does cause alcohol withdrawal, as we know today. And what they also saw is that perhaps the duration of use and the dose may be associated with the intensity of your symptoms. But I think what's more important is that they also found, oh, I'm sorry, that's the blood alcohol level does not have to be equal to zero. They observed that in 1955, and of course we know that today as well. So overall, the, the uh, spectrum of alcohol uh, withdrawal syndrome is kind of described or categorized into four different categories based upon the time, course, and severity. So I'm just going to briefly dis uh, discuss them uh, just for a brief review. So mild symptoms, basically psychomotor agitation, tremors, tongue fasciculation, diaphoresis, et cetera. You can see some autonomic hyperactivity, uh, such as tachycardia and so forth. And of course, uh, hallucinosis is uh, witnessed in about 25 to 30 percent of the patient population. And usually they describe insects or bugs crawling on their skin or persecutory, somebody's out to kill. Now one of the more distinctive uh, features is that these people have clear mental status. They're not confused, unlike delirium tremens. Overall, p uh, patients who are suffering from DT are disoriented or altered. In regards to seizure, about 10% uh, of the patient population experience seizure, usually single episode, but status can uh, occur in about 3% of the time, as we've seen in Charlie here. DT, now historically, the mortality has been up to 35%. I, I think with the emergence of uh, better ICU care and better management with uh, benzodiazepine, that number has actually gone down to five or less. And it is estimated that about 5% of the patient uh, will experience uh, DT, and usually the onset is a little bit delayed, uh, two to three or two to four days after the last drink, and it's characterized by significant autonomic hyperactivity, psychomotor agitation that can potentially lead to hypothermia, and then of course the delirium, which is the characteristic defined by uh, DSM-4 as the disturbance in consciousness, cognition, et cetera, but basically altered and uh, confused. So again, the time course has been well described. Back in 1953, uh, this is uh, one of the uh, studies, observational studies that kind of uh, recorded the incidences of these type of uh, episodes. And as soon as you stop drinking, you can develop tremors, hallucinosis, as well as seizures, right? But based upon their observation, the hallucinosis and the, the tremulous actually peaked a little bit earlier, within 12 hours. Seizures, maybe within the first 24 hours. And then, of course, the patients began to develop more significant confusion disordered senses and autom uh, autonomic hyperactivity, which we know as DT. Now, the pathophysiology behind alcohol withdrawal syndrome has been well described, so I'm just going to briefly uh, kind of go over it here, and it's illustrated well illustrated by this graph, right? It's more of a balance between inhibitory activity versus the excitatory activity in your central nervous system, and those are determined by your GABA-A and the NMDA receptors. So, on figure A, that's a normal person. Basically, they're balanced, so you can go about your daily activity. But with an acute intoxication, alcohol in itself is an agonist of GABA-A and an antagonist of NMDA receptors. So you have a more inhibitory effect and reduced excitatory effect, thus overall 
leading to sedation or intoxication itself. So in chronic uh, alcoholism where you have a, a daily alcohol level within your blood system, you have an upregulation and downregulation of your receptors, downregulate your GABA, upregulate your NMDA, and of course you reach a new balance where you can function even though you are positive in rather uh, your blood alcohol level of various degree. And of course for either medical reasons or they have pancreatitis or for some reason they stop drinking, then they go into uh, withdrawal because the excitatory uh, component in the CNS predominates. So an alcoholic that can't drink usually has some kind of medical problem. So overall, I like to compare the initial presentation to like sympathomimetic toxidrome where you have, you know, vital sign abnormalities which are usually up, hypertension, tachycardia, patient is diaphoretic, pupillary dilatation, which is somewhat uh, consistent with the uh, similar to cocaine or methamphetamine intoxication, although with its uh, unique uh, features. So many studies have tried to see whether they can identify any predictors to find patients who will develop alcohol withdrawals or to see who will develop severe form. They looked at the blood alcohol level, platelet counts, potassium level, etc. There appears to be, have some association, but overall uh, the clinical association is relatively poor, so we don't really use uh, these uh, markers, laboratory markers, in our clinical practice. One author looked at race. Uh, this was actually done in Bellevue. Um, so what they found is that among patient population with a European background appears to have a more severe form of withdrawal compared to African-American heritage and of course the Hispanic in between. Uh, there's no uh, other studies that actually looked at race so um, there's really limited information that we can take away from this single study. So what has proven to be most reliable is the prior history of alcohol withdrawal and DT as the predictor of uh, development of withdrawal symptoms as severity. Now it's been attributed to the, uh, what's been described as a kindling effect where basically with a repetitive neuroexcitation from alcohol withdrawal permanently uh, changes your neural connectivity as well as uh, uh, receptor characteristics and thus leading to or predisposes you to develop seizures or severe withdrawal as well as development of benzodiazepine. Uh, resistance. So one of the characteristics of the uh, changes in the GABA receptor is that it undergoes a structural change from uh, replacing one of the subunit from alpha 1 to alpha 4, uh, subsequently decreasing its sensitivity to GABA as well as uh, sensitivity to benzodiazepine. So it's uh, demonstrated in the uh, animal models. So we all know that the management of alcohol withdrawal consists of symptom trigger, uh, seawall protocol, and so forth. I think that's well uh, established, and I don't necessarily want to talk about that. But I want to talk more about benzodiazepine and your choices of benzodiazepine. Now, the first benzo to be commercially marketed is chlorodiazepoxide, 1960. And this is the first study that actually demonstrated the efficacy of benzodiazepine compared to any other uh, agents such as antipsychotic hydroxyzine thiamine uh, that was used uh, back then to treat alcohol withdrawal. And basically this was a randomized controlled trial among VA patients, uh, double-blinded. And as you can see, the chlorodiazepoxide significantly reduced the incidence of uh, delirium and convulsion compared to any other. 
And overall, the chlorpromazine was found to have increased incidence of uh, seizure uh, due to uh, decreasing its uh, seizure uh, threshold. <coughs> so when we deal with uh, uh, benzodiazepine and our alcohol withdrawal patient, we basically think about these three agents, right? I've excluded uh, midazolam, which is the other IV uh, agent, because uh, it's too short to have any, uh, well, too short of a, a duration of action to have any benefit in management. So when we look at these uh, three, chlorodiazepoxide is only available in PO formulation. Uh, so you can actually use it for uh, potentially a mild cases as well as uh, prophylactically. Um, one of the unique uh, characteristics of uh, chlorodiazepoxide and diazepam, they both have a uh, active metabolite, desmethyl uh, diazepam, which has a half-life of up to 200 hours. So what we consider is that because of these multiple uh, active, uh, half, um, active uh, metabolites, they can experience a great, uh, gradual tapering of benzodiazepine as well as uh, their withdrawal symptoms compared to other agents that doesn't have active metabolite. And diazepam also has a, several others, including oxazepam and uh, tenazepam as its uh, active metabolite as well. So personally, I like to use IV medications. And when you look for acute management, and that's uh, based upon our choice, diazepam and lorazepam. And of course, as we mentioned, diazepam has a longer duration of action, as well as the onset of action is relatively fast, within five minutes. Compared to uh, uh, lorazepam itself, which can uh, be delayed up to 20 minutes. Um, so personally, I like diazepam. I don't use lorazepam because uh, you have a risk of oversedation because you can stack uh, uh, from the repetitive doses because you don't clinically observe the uh, potential benefit of benzodiazepine. So on a small number of uh, withdrawal patients, they are considered benzo-resistant. And that was defined by one uh, particular paper by diazepam requirement greater or equal to 200 milligrams in three hours. Um, this is actually a common finding in Bellevue. Uh, I don't know about University of Maryland or Baltimore area, but we do frequently see these type of patients uh, almost weekly basis. Um, for those type of patients, what has shown to work is phenobarbital. We know that phenobarbital has been used in the past before uh, benzodiazepine. We know the mechanism of action of phenobarb is that it independently binds to GABA-A and increases the duration of chloride channel opening while benzodiazepine increases the frequency of opening, right? But benzodiazepine is GABA dependent. You have to have an endogenous GABA to work, while phenobarbital and propofol does not. So it binds directly and opens directly. So combining benzo and phenobarbital has a synergistic effect. Uh, one of the phenobarbital, uh, I'm sorry, one of the problems with phenobarbital is that it does have a significant uh, side effects such as uh, respiratory depression, or uh, decrease in uh, myocardial ionotropy uh, when you give too much, as well as, of course, the delay on onset as well uh, up to 40 minutes later, okay? So some of the, uh, the studies that have looked at is actually using a lower dose, 65 to 130 milligrams uh, per IV bolus uh, with a maximum of 390. Um, and again, that has shown to actually help the uh, overall outcome of the patient itself. 
the other agent that also uh, was used, or at least being used, in at least in Bellevue, is propofol. If the patient fails both benzodiazepine and uh, phenobarb, the next step, at least in Bellevue's uh, guideline, is propofol. Again, mechanistically, it is a GABA agonist and NMD antagonist, so it does make sense. Uh, however, the limitation is, again, often it requires intubation, and there's uh, also a risk of uh, pro uh, propofol infusion syndrome, depending on a high requirement and duration of days for uh, infusing propofol itself. So this is the uh, uh, guideline that was forwarded to me that exists uh, within the University of Maryland Medical Center. Um, I think this will be updated. It is. It is? Yes. Okay. So as you can see, again, there's three choices, lorazepam, diazepam, and chlorodiazepoxide. Has anyone seen this? Yes. And have you used it? I, I'm okay. All right. So um, there was some little discrepancy, uh, but I think it is being updated. Uh, so I'll move on. So this is an example of uh, a Belleville guideline that I trained under uh, over the past six, uh, previous uh, six years. So we use diazepam only. We start with 10, we double uh, almost every hour. So if patient is non-responsive to the first 10, we double 20. That patient will get up to three doses in an hour. Non-responsive, we double to 40, up to 40, uh, three doses again, and by this time, the patient has gotten almost, uh, yes? So, um, I have a like, start to find out about the next few drugs. We have a moment where we were at 80, um, having a close to like 510, mm -hmm. 40. And we were wondering, I guess folks are getting a little bit uncomfortable with the sheer. Right, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that uh, depends on the uh, clinical suspicion of alcohol withdrawal. And, you know, we do have, uh, you know, electronic records or some kind of records available that we can look up for the previous history. And if the patient can definitely, you know, demonstrate some clinical signs, alcohol level is lower or negative than what have they have previously demonstrated, then I think the suspicion for alcohol withdrawal is pretty significant. But, of course, if patient has temperature or fever or hypothermia, then you have to consider possible infectious as an etiology, right? But um, usually what, uh, at least in my experience from training there, is that patients are very selective few who actually has this type of pattern that requires escalation and frequently requires intubation with propofol. And, and again, that is very small. Now. And again, as you can see, the, uh, the resistance uh, withdrawal, we start adding, or at least Bellevue starts adding phenobarb, and we st they still give diazepam in escalating doses, up to 100 milligrams, at which point uh, you're recommended to uh, intubate the patient and start propofol itself. So they actually looked at pre- and post-implementation of earlier version of this um, uh, algorithm. And basically, yes, you do use more diazepam. Before 250 on, on average, doubled to 500. 
Before, approximately 17% of the patient only received a, a phenobarbital, but that number tripled to uh, 56%. And from that implementation, what they found is that the rate of intubation decreased by half, length of stay also decreased, as well as uh, nos uh, nosocomial infection rate decreased as well. And this, again, study or the guideline, the findings has been replicated by UC Davis Group, uh, who actually adapted the Bellevue uh, guideline into their own ICU. And they've also found decreasing uh, need for vent uh, ventilation, mortality, ICU length of stay, and so forth. So what it appears is that when you have some kind of guideline to standardize a care, rather than having a physician-to-physician -physician var uh, variability that appears to have some benefit rather than uh, perhaps not having a guideline. So next, adjunctive therapy that has been looked at is dexmedetomidine. And I'm sure you guys uh, really like uh, dexmedetomidine for your sedation of intubated patient. Um, overall, we know that it's a central alpha-2 agonist. Um, Evidence is somewhat based upon uh, case series, case reports, retrospective uh, chart review. There was one uh, randomized controls trial that I found with about 120 patients. And what they overall found is that, yes, it does improve sedation. Yes, the, it does improve autonomic uh, abnormalities, as well as it decreases the benzodiazepine requirement and mechanical ventilation. So. I'm not exactly sure if that is really um, convincing uh, for me at this point to say, you know, it should be a routine use. Definitely it should not be used as a single agent. Uh, but again, there are some studies that are actually being done and hopefully that we will see a little bit more evidence in the future to say we, whether we can add on to our traditional therapy of benzodiazepine. So other adjunctive therapy that has been studied and tried, such as anticonvulsants, antipsychotics, adrenergic agents, overall the evidence is very limited. Um, use of a beta blocker, yes, it will decrease your heart rate. Yes, it will decrease your blood pressure. But is it actually addressing the pathology? No. So um, haloperidol, again, will increase your incidence of seizure uh, based upon several studies. Um, so overall application. Uh, should not be routine. So overall summary of management is that yes, it is symptom-triggered uh, therapy. Please pick your benzodiazepine, whatever you like. Is You like lorazepam, that's great. I like diazepam. Use it freely, use it liberally, okay? And consider secondary agents such as phenobarbital, which can actually work synergistically. And of course, at least in my experience, I like propofol. Um, I, I understand there are certain risks involved into it, uh, but it has, you know, worked for me in my experience. And of course, as we've seen before, having a guideline really helps improve caring for our patients. Because again, you know, I may be comfortable with certain agents and you may not. And it eliminates that physician variability. And last thing to remember is that they need supportive care. You know, thiamine, folate, nutritional support, uh, whether it be electrolyte uh, abnormalities, uh, repletion, and those uh, things, as well as to uh, try to prevent any type of uh, comorbidity that can develop throughout the, uh, the stay in our uh, ICUs. So um, I'm going to actually switch gears at this point and kind of switch to cyanide. Okay, yes? 
Okay. So definitely benzyl withdrawal uh, is uh, known and can develop, right? Um, the, the, again, benzyl's GABA agonist, you presume that uh, the GABA may be downregulated. But in these patients, actually, that's why the diazepam is such an uh, excellent agent, because it has three active metabolites, including uh, desmethyl uh, diazepam, that continues to stick around in their system. And instead of having uh, pharmacokinetics with a bolus's peak and trough, where you get an average steady rate, you spike their benzodiazepine or diazepam, for instance, load, and then you have a gradual tapering throughout time. So we don't necessarily anticipate withdrawals uh, from the benzodiazepine itself. If they're having any type of symptomatic withdrawal symptoms, it's likely their underlying uh, alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Uh, any other questions before I move on? Okay, so cyanide, um, very lethal, right, but relatively rare. So cyanide has made lasting impression in history. Uh, it was first discovered back in 18th century, but it kind of disappeared for a little bit until World War II. It's been used a lot in concentration camp, um, as well as to uh, commit suicide or homicide. So the most recent uh, mass suicide that we know of, at least some of us may be familiar with, is Jonestown, Guyana, uh, where you know, this uh, Christian cult group actually relocated to uh, uh, Guyana and established a compound. And unfortunately, uh, you know, a U.S. congressman was interested in exactly what's going on over there because there were so many Americans, but they accidentally killed him. So as a subsequently, they led to this event where they put potassium cyanide in Kool-Aid and everyone drank it and uh, more than 800 people died. So hence, don't drink the Kool-Aid comes from this event, okay? And since then, cyanide has made news for various reasons. Killing elephants to harvest ivory, killing a family member who won lottery ticket, and to resolve spousal dispute, okay? This actually gentleman, uh, Pittsburgh gentleman, was uh, found guilty about last week. And uh, most recently, this gentleman actually made headlines for committing suicide in a courtroom. He actually uh, was devastated by financial crisis from 2008, set his house in fire uh, to collect uh, arson uh, insurance collection uh, money. And then he basically swallowed what later found to be uh, cyanide, collapsed, seized, cardiovascular collapse in two minutes, and died. I, I wanted to show you the video because it's available on YouTube, but uh, due to uh, time restriction, um, I wasn't able to do so. So if you're interested in the uh, typical presentation of suicide attempt with cyanide, this illustrates the uh, clinical findings. Um, overall, cyanide is very rare. 250 cases on average per year out of over 2 million poisoning. So that's like 0.001% or so, okay? And the most common exposure is usually gas in form of smoke inhalation victims. Next, followed by liquid. Um, You'll be surprised that uh, nail polish removers have a, a chemical called acetonitrile that releases cyanide once it's metabolized. Um, it's still available out in your uh, local uh, stores, as well as industrial workers, whether it be solvents or reagents. Now, as mentioned before, 
residential uh, fire is the most common exposure of cyanide gas. Uh, combustion of uh, synthetic materials such as plastic, polyurethane will release cyanide. And food sources such as the um, uh, apricot pits, cherry, and peaches. Uh, I was surprised to find the um, Trader Joe selling apricot kernels. Um, poor man's almond, uh, so it advertised. I wouldn't recommend eating too much of it, um, but it is available for kind of health food, so to speak. So cassava is another staple, um, you know, that is consumed by a large population in uh, South America and Africa, right? But so cassava also has a cyanogenic compound called linamarin. Um, so it needs to be uh, prepared properly by soaking it in water for 24 hours so that this cyanogenic compound is leached. Uh, and then you can definitely consume it uh, safely, but there are, you know, diseases that are found to associated with this uh, cassava consumption uh, in those regions. So other exposures are mainly occupational, uh, such as chemists or laboratory technician who actually uses cyanide um, uh, reagents in their uh, daily uh, work uh, environment. Jewelry production, mining, textile, plastic uh, production, fumigation, etc. So as doctors, we do give medicine, one in particular, nitroprusside, that contains cyanide to our patients. Um, who has actually used nitroprusside before? I have personally never used it. Um, again, as you can see, the structure itself, right? You have one nitric oxide molecule to five cyanide molecule. Um, I don't really like the risk-benefit ratio there. But, you know, certain patients do require uh, nitroprusside infusion uh, in a setting of aortic dissection or certain cardiac uh, surgery patient. Uh, but overall, not everyone necessarily develops cyanide toxicity, but uh, it is a little unclear what is the clear risk factor. Sometimes uh, it is described as a, uh, the, the amount of uh, infusion as well as the total dose sometimes predisposes uh, a certain patient. But overall, patient is at risk if you infuse greater than two micrograms per kilogram per minute. So that's the general accepted uh, uh, number. Now, the studies have found that if you actually co-administer with a thiosulfate, you can actually prevent uh, cyanide poisoning. And what they've studied is 10 to 1 ratio between thiosulfate and uh, nitroprusside. And what you can see is that uh, on this uh, diagram right here, so cyanide combines with the thiosulfate to uh, develop thiocyanate, helped by the uh, enzyme rhodonese. And eventually, the uh, thiocyanate is eliminated in the urine. So, but the problem is that the uh, thiocyanate itself is toxic, although significantly less than cyanide itself. In a setting of a renal failure, renal insufficiency, thiocyanate will accumulate and will cause uh, neurotoxicity, such as altered mental status and seizure, without any evident uh, metabolic acidosis. And only a way to eliminate thiocyanate in those cases is hemodialysis itself. So briefly, pathophysiology. Uh, it likes to bind to enzyme, particularly the uh, electron transportain and complex four, this particular uh, cytochrome oxidase A3. And as you can see on the diagram, that is the last step where oxygen is reduced into water. So what it happens is, of course, you completely shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism, generating uh, lactic acidosis and metabolic acidosis. 
So overall clinical features, uh, somewhat nonspecific. However, cyanide is a neurotoxin, so you will see a various spectrum of uh, central nervous system symptoms ranging from headache to seizure and coma. And subsequently, a uh, patient will have a cardiovascular collapse, hypotension, and uh, usually the death is related to the, uh, the cardiovascular collapse itself. And of course, the GI symptoms, uh, that is a very vague uh, symptomatology that is seen in a lot of uh, acute poisoning. So uh, I think the unique characteristics, if I was to point out, is usually the central nervous system toxin with followed by cardiovascular collapse. Now, sometimes it's really hard to diagnose cyanide poisoning because we don't really see it uh, very often, as well as, you know, there is really no way to get a quick level of cyanide in our hospital. It's a send-out study. It will take about three to four days. Uh, it could be Quest Diagnostic or NMDS, depending on what the, the laboratory of uh, choice is here. But you have to have a high clinical suspicion in a patient with the right setting that exposes that person to possible ingestor or inhalation, such as uh, patients, uh, fire victims or smoke inhalation victims, sudden collapse of chemistry worker, um, suicide attempt with coma and severe lactic acidosis. Usually, these patients don't survive. Um, and then, of course, the ingestion of other uh, products or domestic products that can be found in our environment. So, in the right clinical setting, lactate level has shown to be useful to identify cyanide toxicity. And all the data actually comes from uh, the uh, French group in Paris. So what these guys did is basically they collected a lot of, a lot of fire uh, smoke inhalation victims and they took blood before giving them the treatment. So they measured cyanide level. They also measured lactate level. And what they found is that lactate greater than the 10 had a high association with toxic level of cyanide, which they defined in their units uh, was 40 micromole per liter, but in our units, it's one milligram per liter. Okay, so what they found is the sensitivity and specificity of 87 and 94 percent, and it has a nice predictive value of 95 percent. But how about carbon monoxide, you ask, right? Smoke, smoke inhalation victims are also exposed to carbon monoxide poisoning. They answered that question as well. They took pure carbon monoxide poisoning, which was de uh, defined as an exposure to faulty water heater and faulty gas uh, cookers. And what they did is, again, same. They drew um, uh, the pl uh, plasma lactate level, and they compared it in the wide spectrum of carbon monoxide poisoning from asymptomatic to the severe uh, neurological impairment. And what they found is that majority of the patient actually did not have a significantly elevated cyanide level. Everyone almost had below five. Okay, so. Um, Carbon monoxide poisoning is not, not a great contributor of uh, lactate, uh, lactic acid. So how about in non-fire victims? Again, they went and reviewed their charts for a 12 years period. They found only 11 patients during that time who either ingested or inhaled cyanide. And again, what they saw is that among these 11 patients, they also found that lactate level of eight or greater is highly associated with uh, toxic cyanide level with a sensitivity specificity and predictive value, as you can see there. 
Okay, so among fire victims, again, this is uh, most likely the most common uh, encounter of uh, potential cyanide poisoning that we will see. You should have a high clinical suspicion when the lactic acid is greater than 10 or patient suffers a cardiovascular collapse, either arrest or hypotension. In non-fire victims, again, you have to have the right history, but clinically, when that patient experiences rapid decompensation, mental status changes, cardiovascular collapse, and perhaps with a severe uh, metabolic acidosis, the lactic acid level greater than or equal to eight has been at least shown to be useful. So to uh, wrap up, um, we're gonna just summarize the uh, cyanide treatment. Um, again, France was a little bit more advanced compared to us in regards to use of hydroxycobalamin. They've used it for over 30 years. FDA only approved it in 2006. So hydroxycobalamin has become a standard of care since about eight, eight years ago, kind of displacing the cyanide antidote kit. So it was approved based upon these three studies, again, done by the French group. They took dogs and gave uh, potassium cyanide infusion until they stopped breathing. And they randomized into three solution infusions. As you see, saline hydroxycobalamin of 75 versus 150 mg per kilo. And in saline solution, almost all died, but with 150 milligrams per kilo, everyone survived. Pretty convincing. K-series, again, they looked at the, uh, uh, their ICU patients. Patients with lethal level of cyanide when given hydroxycobalamin, 71% of them survived. Fire, similar cases, 67 survival rate when they had toxic level of cyanide when given hydroxycobalamin. So based upon this result, FDA actually approved and we are using it today. Uh, unfortunately, the Baltimore City uh, EMS do not carry hydroxycobalamin uh, for the cost reasons. So one of the main problems of uh, hydroxycobalamin is the red, uh, color discolor uh, red discoloration that you see in serum particularly, as well as skin and the urine itself. And that has found to be lasting up to uh, over a month, uh, at least from this uh, healthy volunteer study. They also found that the blood pressure increased a little bit on systolic and diastolic blood pressure, but overall that's been attributed to the uh, nitric oxide scavenging in the absence of cyanide. And uh, like any other medication, there were two cases of uh, allergic reaction who actually responded to just standard therapy. So one of the main problems, in our, at least in our clinical setting, is that it interferes with certain laboratory uh, assays that uses colorimetric uh, analysis, such as AST, T-bili, creatinine, uh, iron, even um, uh, carboxyhemoglobin. Thus, it's not necessarily relevant in regards to, because we have all the labs prior to administration hydroxycobalamin, but after that, if you're trying to follow these numbers, uh, it's very unreliable because of the, um, the color interference itself. Now finally, cyanide antidote kit, uh, it basically consists of these three components, two nitrites and sodium thiosulfate. Basically, the nitrites are there to induce uh, methemoglobinemia because cyanide has a higher affinity to iron plus three in the methemoglobin rather than the cytochrome complex four. So it draws it out from the tissue, and subsequently, once it is out in your vascular compartment, then thiosulfate actually conjugates with it and uh, 
forms thiocyanate for elimination. Um, but what, overall, one of the problems with uh, a cyanide antidote kit is actually in a setting of uh, co-intoxication of carbon monoxide and cyanide, where patient already has decreased oxygen content and decreased uh, perfusion related to carboxyhemoglobin. You don't necessarily want to induce further decrease in um, uh, oxygen carrying capacity by inducing methemoglobinemia up to 20-25%. So it has been recommended in these settings, if you don't have hydroxycobalamin, to consider using thiosulfate alone. But when you actually compare head-to-head -head against hydroxycobalamin, thiosulfate is inferior. Uh, but uh, of course, if you don't have hydroxycobalamin, you don't really have an option. Um, and as well, the onset of action is delayed because, again, there is really no way of extracting the cyanide out of the tissue without the methemoglobin. So overall, the onset of action is, I believe, to be slower. So just briefly, just take on points. Alcohol withdrawal, select your benzodiazepine that you like, use a lot. Phenobarbital and propofol can be uh, helpful in a setting of a uh, uh, resistant withdrawal or severe withdrawal. And again, dexmedetomidine is kind of up and coming. I mean, I know a lot of ICU are using it uh, for alcohol withdrawal in conjunction with benzodiazepine, but overall, I think, in my opinion, the uh, evidence is not sufficient to uh, routinely recommend uh, dexmedetomidine at this time. Cyanide toxicity, lactate level in the right clinical scenario uh, has uh, demonstrated to be useful, and to use hydroxycobalamin, uh, if available, uh, rather than the lilicate. So I just wanted to uh, end with saying that uh, we do have uh, toxicology consult available if you're um, having some questions regarding it. Uh, otherwise, I'd like to thank you for your attention, and I'll take uh, your questions uh, now. Thank you. Dialysis for? No. Um, basically, you know, again, when you, when you think about dialysis, right, um, you're dialyzing the vascular compartment, right? So the toxin has to be in the vascular compartment. And whether it is dialyzable or not depends on log P and volume of distribution. So that has to be, that has to favor the aqueous compartment rather than the lipophilic compartment or the tissue. Cyanide predominantly binds to the tissue in mitochondria. So dialysis will not extract uh, those cyanide molecules. Cyanide uh, molecule has a high affinity to cobalt, which is the, uh, 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 I can't go back, but it is the central uh, metal in the hydroxycobalamin, and iron plus three, which is in methemoglobinemia. So that's how you bring it out to the compartment in the vascular, and then you uh, try to eliminate it through urine. In terms of hydroxycobalamin, it becomes uh, vitamin B12, right? And you just pee it out. And then for uh, cyanide antidote kit, it becomes uh, thiocyanate, and you, again, uh, eliminate via urine. Oh, thiocyanate, I would definitely dialyze, right? Because uh, that patient on dialysis has no way of eliminating it. but you cannot expect cyanide to be dialyzable because it is not in the vascular compartment. Oh, so um, to repeat the, uh, the question, 
in a case of a large benzodiazepine use, you can have delirium uh, where it could be confused by, uh, uh, with the delirium tremens. Uh, so uh, if there isn't any specific algorithm. Um, overall, there's really no like algorithm that has looked at that particular towards the in component. Um, if you actually look at the time course of delirium tremens, again, it's probably on the onset of two to four days. And I think overall, it is a little bit more difficult to isolate or differentiate between the two as you just uh, suggested, because you're trying to treat alcohol withdrawal, but you can definitely induce ICU delirium by medication. And um, unfortunately, I don't have a specific algorithm. I think it's just going to be, have to be a uh, just Again, continuing the supportive care and then reassessing the patient as you attempt to titrate off the benzodiazepine. Um, but I think overall, I don't necessarily think that the, the, the necessarily ideology uh, of if it's a, a DT, right, um, I don't necessarily think that if patient develops into DT, coming out of sedation, that seems a little unlikely if you're treating with appropriate benzodiazepine doses because you're treating the underlying etiology. For in the other scenario where you actually are trying to catch up and patient develops into DT um, because you never actually gain control of his withdrawal symptoms, then it's probably more likely to be DT rather than ICU delirium. Uh, but I, I don't have a very good answer for you. Please uh, comment on is it the order of events, or they can each alcohol withdrawal um, uh, symptomatology or signs oh, okay. happen separately. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, so uh, the question is uh, basically the in terms of alcohol withdrawal, patient can just present with seizure. You know, patient was found down, uh, seizure-like activity, and was brought in, and then patient can have other tremulous signs. So you may not necessarily be the first uh, provider to encounter what actually occurred or not, but as you can see from the prior uh, graph that illustrated what happens in a time course, you can have seizure, you can have hallucinosis, you can also have uh, tremulousness or tongue fasciculation with autonomic instability. That doesn't necessarily have to uh, follow in sequence, uh, but definitely the DT is more a delay onset. You may not necessarily see it uh, earlier on, unless the patient's last drink was perhaps two or three days ago. So I think it depends on patient's uh, presentation. So the question is, seven days out, uh, treating with benzodiazepine, and um, I believe you're saying that patient has a ICU delirium, perhaps, right? Benzo-related, perhaps. Um, and this, uh, would it be safe to use uh, Haldol? Um, I don't personally know the evidence behind um, treating uh, ICU delirium related to benzo with Haldol, to say. Uh, but overall, the use of Haldol in alcohol withdrawal syndrome has demonstrated to lead to seizures because it decreases the seizure threshold. But in regards to the uh, treating ICU, uh, ICU delirium, I don't know the, uh, the evidence to suggest whether uh, it can lead to seizure disorder or not. But I would suspect that um, if you do use a lot, significant amount of haloperidol, definitely you may experience QT prolongation or haloperidol, you know, uh, toxicity related to haloperidol use in conjunction to whatever 
polypharmacy that the, the patient may be experiencing. Uh, but, uh, but then again, you know, it's something that I personally don't know the evidence for, uh, so that I, I can't really comment on that uh, uh, aspect. But definitely it should be kept in mind. But patient definitely with alcohol withdrawal syndrome has a tendency to develop seizures with a long withdrawal history, and if we are treating that withdrawal with haloperidol or uh, any other antipsychotics. Prophylaxis. Okay, so basically the next question is uh, recommendation for uh, preventing or prophylactically treating uh, uh, potential uh, development of alcohol withdrawal. So I think that would base upon uh, what his prior history is, um, you know, and see what his requirement has been. And, you know, a lot of detox uh, programs use chlorodizapoxide with success, right? The question is, how much do you really want to use it? Um, I wouldn't necessarily use 25 milligrams. I would use between uh, 50 to 100, right? I think 25 milligrams is just in, uh, insufficient. Um, and the, the, the first study that actually showed you about the demonstration of the efficacy of uh, chlorodized epoxide, that they used uh, 100 milligrams TID, but they were treating uh, alcohol withdrawal. So I think you can give 7,500 first dose and see whether that sedates your patient too much or not, right? And then you can definitely titrate back in your next dose. And you will, I think it will be between like 50 to 100 personally. Can you, can you please uh, comment on overall uh, rules of thumb that you would recommend um, for triage into the ICU from the ED or from the floor? What the, um, warrants, in your opinion? <laughs> Um, wow. I know there's a, uh, a, it's a loaded question. No, no, no. Um, you know, I'm an ER doc. Um, and of, of course, you know, we get the, the question of uh, where to place uh, the patient. And I usually like to make that in conjunction with uh, uh, admitting officer or intensivist. But um, overall, it, it really depends on in the ER how much benzodiazepine requirement has been been. And I think if I am reaching like 100 milligrams within the two hours, that, that guy is not going to do well in a regular floor because you know what the nursing, uh, I'm just going to stop there, but in the floors, you know, the, the nursing evaluation is not very frequent because they have so many patients. And if patient does have a, a high uh, benzodiazepine requirement, then I think it should be stepped up uh, rather than putting the patient on the floor to maybe an IMC, perhaps not ICU, but I think an IMC is an appropriate uh, middle step where you can observe for next 12 hours, 24 hours, and decide whether we have controlled his withdrawal to step him down to regular floor or he is not responding, so you step him up to the ICU level. Treatment for Wernicke? Yeah. Okay. So the question is, um, on trauma ICU patients, when you uh, identify potential onset of Wernicke three, four days out, uh, whether uh, it would be too late to start thiamine? Oh, right, physical signs or clinical signs. I, I think, you know, that's why I think the post-surgical patients are a little bit tough, especially trauma patients, because they have significant injuries and they have a lot of substance issues because Half of the patients are intoxicated in alcohol, at least that you know of, and then plus other substances. So you don't exactly, the picture is not very clear. Um, 
And unfortunately, I don't really have a wisdom for you, right? Um, I, I'm not that advanced in age. I can't really, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more experience in this group. But I don't think it hurts to actually give thiamine daily basis. And uh, if the patient has a history of uh, chronic alcoholism. And again, you know, chart review, past admission, it will help you. But I think overall, you know, again, because of the underlying injuries, potential complications, uh, it's very hard to uh, determine uh, the classic symptoms of Wernicke from trauma-related uh, uh, confusion or ICU delirium itself. So I would just recommend, you know, if you believe it is Wernicke's, then treat it. Thiamine. It's, thiamine is the treatment. Thiamine is just a vitamin. It doesn't hurt, right? You cannot have any adverse side effects. Great. Yeah. Thank you.